Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Romans 8, verses 28. I'm going to cover verse 28 through 29 and finish up the chapter. Our context is this. Paul has in Romans 1 talked about the wrath of God on all creation, all mankind. In Romans 2, he says not only is the wrath on the Gentiles, the wrath is on the Jews. He goes at the end of chapter 3, he gets into justification by faith. He talks about justification by faith in chapters 4 and 5, and then he starts talking about sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And he is at, in chapter 6, he talked about the problem of sin. In chapter 7, he talked about the problem of law, which produces sin, and sin, of course, produces bondage and death. And he talks about how flesh, slavery, sin, and death all go together and are bad, and are very bad. And then in Romans 8, he gives us the solution to all this, which is life in the Spirit at the beginning of the chapter. And the culmination of our life in the Spirit is at the end of the chapter, which is our glorification, even as we are suffering persecution from the world. And so that's our context. We start in Romans 8, verse 28. This, of course, is one of the most popular Christian verses. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what does it mean to be called by God? Well, there's two kinds of calls. There's the effectual calling, and that's what is known as irresistible grace by Calvinists. It means it's the call that that is effectual. It has its effect. It brings Christians into the kingdom. It's going to happen. In other words, that's also known as the inward call. The outward call is the gospel going out to all mankind, some of whom reject the outward call. So some people reject the outward call, but nobody rejects the inward call. The outward call is sometimes called the general call. All right, so all things work together for good, but not just for anybody. There's a condition for those who love God. All things work out together for good. All things do not work out together for good for non-believers. Their end is wrath, punishment, and hell, and disaster in this life and the next. So this promise, the promise of this verse is not for everybody, just for Christians. Now, when Paul says all things work together for good, the immediate context shows that Paul is mainly talking about bad things. Because in this section of Romans 8, he's going to talk about a lot of bad things that are working against Christians. And Paul is trying to encourage the Christians and says, oh, don't, don't worry about all that bad stuff because they're going to have a good effect. And the immediate preceding context shows that Paul is mainly talking about bad things. In Romans 8.26, he says this, In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. So Paul is talking about the Spirit helping us in our weakness because of all these bad things that can happen. Now, of course, good things also work together for our good, too. Paul's not denying that, but I think the context shows that He's talking about when he says all things, he says all things, including bad things, good things, including bad things. What kind of bad things can happen? Accidents, driving a grounding rod through your hand, poking your eye out in a car wreck, tripping over a bench and breaking your arm, illness, thyroid problems, cancer, infertility, torn ACL, baldness, personal sins, being inconsiderate of your wife, looking at pornography on the Internet, gossiping about other people. So yeah, all those things, as bad as they are, as bad as they are, they still work out for our good. Now, we need to make a caveat here. As Steve Ackerson says, this verse cannot be used for people who go out and deliberately sin and say, oh, this will work out for my good. I think I'll go out and rob a bank and it will work for my good. Well, that's stupid nonsense. It's not even worthy of a reply. It's so stupid. Now, to say that all things will work out for our good, is not the same thing as saying that all things are good in themselves. 
In fact, those bad things are sinful. All those things I mentioned are a result either as a result of sin in the world or direct sin itself. But what is good is how God uses them to miraculously bring good in our life. Now, here's a homely analogy. Chickens eat bugs and worms and turn them into delicious eggs. Here's another good one. This is from the master of homely metaphors, Steve Ackerson. Quote, the sole survivor of a shipwreck washed up on the shore of a deserted island. After much work, he managed to build a hut only to have it burned down when he was cooking that night. It was the last straw. He angrily shook his fist toward heaven and demanded to know why God had allowed that to happen. However, an ocean liner soon appeared offshore and he was rescued. The captain explained he had seen the signal fire and come to investigate. Now, one more remark about all things work together for our, for our good. Our good is not necessarily necessarily mean our comfort, our ease, our popularity, or prosperity. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't be comfort, comfortable at times. They can't be at ease at times. They can't be popular at times. In fact, Paul said, he, good report and bad report. Good report. He preached the gospel. That means sometimes he was popular. I mean, one in one place, what was that, uh, Lystra? Was it Lystra? I think it was Lystra where they mistook him for a god and started trying to offer sacrifices to him. So, sure, Christians can have popularity and prosperity. Some, some Christians get rich. Rich Christians, they're giving a lot of their money away, but they are prosperous. So Paul doesn't, there's nothing wrong with those things, but Paul, but things working out for our good does not necessarily mean you're going to end up in that situation. You could end up in jail somewhere. You could end up being persecuted. You could end up being run into the jail by a communist in red China. But at any rate, whatever it is, God has our good in aim. Who does God work things together for good? For, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? His purpose is to glorify us, to conform Christians to Christ's image, as we'll see here in the next couple of verses. We go to verse 29 of Romans 8. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Among many brothers, excuse me. Now he says, for, he's elaborating on all the things working together for good that he just mentioned in verse 28. Everything works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, because for those he foreknew, he also predestined. In other words, the reason why everything works together for good is because he's predestined us to be conformed to his image and ultimately to be glorified. So here's the good news. The bad news is bad things happen to us. But here's the good news. First of all, God foreknew us. Now, of course, there's a big split of opinion. This is Romans 8:29 is the golden chain, as the Calvinists call it. This is the Calvinist favorite verse. I really wish Arminians would love this verse as much as I do. Armenian says here that when God foreknew the people that were going to be in the kingdom, he knew based on people's free will who would choose to believe. And I, to me, this is the weakest spot. I know Armenians have their verses that I have to explain. I know that. But this, to me, is the weakest thing. How in the world can God foreknow what somebody's going to do and be sovereign at the same time? And and, and besides, let's forget, forget about the philosophy of that. To me, foreknowing means foredoing. But... Let me give you a quote from an Armenian theologian, H.C. Thiessen, whose book I have on my shelf. On page 344 of his lectures in systematic theology, he says this, We are nowhere told what it is in the foreknowledge of God that determines his choice. In other words, this is an Armenian saying, well, Paul doesn't say why God foreknew us. He just did it. He foreknew us. Thiessen goes on, I'm quoting from Ackerson now, Thiessen goes on to write that it is, quote, unquote, postulating to believe that God chose those he knew in advance would accept him. 
In other words, that God's choice is dependent upon our, our choice. It's postulating, all right, and it's a bad postulating, a bad postulate, in my humble opinion. Now, for new can also mean for loved. In other words, the no is not in an intellectual sense, but rather a love relationship. God for loved us, and therefore he knew us. For example, the idea of knowledge is love is in the King James, the famous verse that says that Adam knew Eve. It means he had sex with her. He was completely intimate with her. He loved her. Amos 3.2, Amos 3, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. So God tells Israel, I love you. It doesn't mean he had intellectual knowledge of Israel out of all the clans of the earth. He knows all the clans of the earth equally. God's knowledge is, he's omniscient. But it means I've loved you before all the other clans of the earth. Jeremiah 1.5a, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. This is Holman Christian Study Bible Translation. I chose you, the ESV has new. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. So there we have knowledge and, and, and choosing, election, if you will, being synonymous. According to whatever Hebrew word that was, two English translations show this, the likeness of the two concepts, choosing, knowing, and loving. So when God foreknew us, he foreloved us, he loved us before the foundation of the world. And by the way, that's what that means, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he foreloved us, he foreknew us, and for God to foreknow something is to foreordain, it's to happen. Now, that is a philosophical proposition that philosophers love to talk about, and it's not, it didn't start with the Christians. I mean, Aristotle talked about it in his famous analogy of a sea battle. If the, the unmoved mover knows that there's going to be a sea battle on a certain date in advance, well, does that not mean he also is going to determine who's going to win the sea battle? Because if the unmoved mover doesn't know who's going to win the sea battle, he, he, he's not sovereign, is he? Well, we'll, we'll we're not going to get into theology here, but that's the basic contours of the debate I've just given you. Now, notice that Jesus will end up being, when we are conformed to the image of Christ, ultimately when we're glorified, Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. Many brothers. This is the reason God foreknew, predestined, called, and so forth, called us and predestined us to be conformed to his image is so that Jesus will have more glory. He will have more glory than if he were there in heaven by himself. Many brothers will be conformed to Jesus' image. And Jesus will then be the firstborn among many brothers. What does firstborn mean? Well, it has two meanings. It can mean firstborn chronologically. He was the first one to rise from the dead, as John Gill said. Or it can mean firstborn in the sense that he has preeminence over all of his adopted brothers. Because the firstborn in Jewish law got the bulk of the father's inheritance. If there were three children, the estate was divided into four parts, and the first child got a double portion. So Jesus, when you see Jesus as the firstborn, that either means he's the one that has preeminence or it means he's the firstborn from the dead. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's going to be glorious when we get there. Now, we will be predestined to be conformed to Jesus' image. What's included in Jesus' image? Well, we'll have perfect moral character like he does, and we'll have a glorified body like he does. Not a bad destiny for those who believe. Now, this verse sets up verse 30, 29 and 30, verses 29 and 30 really go together. And they form what is what a lot of writers call the golden chain, the so-called golden chain. Those who God foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Now, the question is, is it possible to break the chain? If God foreknew us, can, is he then not going to call us? Is he not going to justify us? Well, according to Arminians, they would seem to say that because 
at any point an Arminian can lose his salvation and say, I'm not justified. And therefore, the God who foreknew somebody ends up not glorifying that person. You, you break the golden chain, if you will. Look at all the also's in this verse. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. And then we go, I'll peek ahead in verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. They all go together, folks. None of this losing your salvation right in the middle of the chain. Our ultimate goal, our ultimate destiny, if you will, is glorification. Philippians 1.6. I'm aware of this, Paul says, that he, God, who started a good work in you, will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to happen. So this is a very comforting verse for Christians. One other point I need to make, which I left out, unfortunately, about the many brothers, so that Jesus will be firstborn among many brothers. Here's a good verse to back that up. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and nation and people and nation. Every tribe and language and people and nation all over the world. I love that phrase because that shows there's going to be a ton of folks. I mean, even in the western regions of China, the most pagan area of the world, there are Christians everywhere. This counters the idea that Christians will ultimately, ultimately be us full and no more, that Christians will ultimately be just a persecuted, driveling minority on the earth while the pagans take it over. Uh-uh. It's not going to be that way. We're going to have a lot of persecution, but we are going to win, and we are going to cover the earth with God's glory. Now, this idea that Christians will be few, a lot of it comes from dispensationalism and uh, hyper-pessimistic, pessimillennialism, if I can put it that way, pre-trib, rapture the world so evil, we're going to be pulled out of it. Meanwhile, the world's going to continue to go to hell while I polish the rails on a sinking ship. You know the idea. And a lot of it comes from narrow is the way and straight is the gate. Jesus was referring to Pharisees. He wasn't referring to all of mankind. Yeah, the Pharisees didn't go through the narrow gate. They were encumbered with too much baggage. But Jesus also talked about a mustard seed, a little tiny mustard seed that will grow and cover until its limbs cover the whole earth. How about the leaven in the, in the bread? There's lots of kingdom metaphors that talk about the kingdom going over and over until there are many brethren conformed to the image of Christ. We go to verse 30 in Romans 8. And those he predestined, that is, predestined to be conformed to his image, that he is God. And those that he, God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So there's the last part of the golden chain. The four new part of the golden chain is in verse 29, and then predestined, called, justified, and glorified are in verse 30. So let's now proceed through the links of the golden chain in sequence. First of all, he predestined in verse 30, and that, as we know from verse 29, means predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I talked about that on discussing the previous verse. And then he says he also called. I also mentioned that. Again, for review, there's two kinds of calling. The outward call, which is a general call for all mankind to repent, to believe in Jesus. Now, men can and do refuse that call. Matthew 22:14. for many are invited, but few are chosen. And then there's the inward call, the so-called effectual call. This is irresistible grace, as gotquestions.org puts it. It means that once he starts calling you as in one of his chosen children, you're going to come. And, of course, this is the call that's being referred to here in verse 30. So, God calls us, and then he, after those he called, he also justified. Justified means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term, as Thayer's lexicon says, to be declared righteous. It's just as if you had never sinned. 
the books are wiped clean in God's courtroom in heaven. Now, you would think after justification, Paul would mention sanctification. He doesn't in the golden chain, but it's implied, as Adam Clark says, after all, what's, what happens between justification and glorification? Sanctification. Glorification is really your ultimate sanctification. All right, so the last link in the golden chain is glorified. That means to have a perfect, redeemed, glorified body, as well as mind, will, and emotions, too, I might add. So Paul starts out with sufferings in this last section of Romans 8, and he ends up with glorification. We see here in verse 18, in Romans 8, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Again, Paul is trying to comfort persecuted Christians. Sufferings, big deal. Glory, that's going to be an eternal weight of glory, as he says in another scripture. So here's a summary of chapter 8 so far. This is from Steve Ackerson. Suffering and glory go together, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8. There is no comparison between our present suffering and our future glory, verse 18. All creation is presently groaning, waiting for glory, verses 19 through 23. We have true hope despite our suffering, verses 24 through 25. The Holy Spirit is praying for us, verses 26 through 27. God is sovereign, work, sovereign, working all things together for our good to make us like Jesus, verses 28 through 30. Now let me give you an even more bird's eye view, zoom out a little bit more. The first part of Romans 8 deals with sanctification. The second part of Romans 8 deals with glorification. And glorification, of course, is our ultimate sanctification. We go to verse 31 of Romans 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? These things, what are these things? Well, probably, in my humble opinion, it's all those bad things that Paul mentions in verses 28 and 30, all things that work together for good, and therefore we're predestined to glory. That makes sense to me. All these bad things. Now, of course, he could be referring to all of Romans 1 from after the introduction all the way to verse 30, the wrath of God being on us, therefore we're justified by faith and then we have a problem with sanctification because of sin working in our flesh for death, and then God overcomes that with life in the Spirit, and because of all these things, if God is for us, who is against us? I prefer to think that Paul is thinking about the immediate context, which is all those bad things, talking about persecution, because after all, in just a minute, he's going to list a whole bunch of things, height of death, principalities, powers, all these things that can't separate us from God. If God is for us, who is against us? Now that if, it has the meaning of since, the NIV Study Bible says the form of the condition makes it clear that there's no doubt about it. That's a point of Greek grammar I have that really bugs me. I haven't figured it out yet because so many times you know it means sense, but the translations will never translate it as sense. It's always translated as if, and we don't talk that way. So I, I, I haven't figured that out yet. But anyway, here it's clear from the context that, of course, God is for us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? Now, he's going to mention all the factors of life that are arrayed, arrayed against us in, a, in an up, upcoming verse, but just as a general summary, there ain't nobody that can be against us. Nobody that, now what he means is, who can be against us and beat us? Of course, there are people against us, but what he means is, there ain't nobody out there that's going to do us in. Here's some examples of those who are against the Christians, against us, but who will not prevail against us. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, secularists, gay rights activists, atheists, and anybody else you can think of. They ain't going to win, folks. 
They might look like they're riding high, but God's going to lay them low at some point because pretty soon every knee, every tongue, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And these people are in rebellion against him. Romans 8.32, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And so this is how we end up being glorified with nobody being able to prevail against us because God gave us his own son. He offered him up, that means nailed him up on the cross, for us all, that does not speak to general atonement, unlimited atonement, it means us all Christians. In fact, it really more speaks to limited atonement. It doesn't prove it, but it means that, you know, when God offered the Son up on the cross, it was for Christians, the elect, the sheep. Now, if he did that, if he died on the cross, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Well, if he if he died on the cross, I mean, what more can can you, isn't it just a logical thing to think? Well, if he did that for us, he'll give us everything else we need. Now, in particular, everything Paul is probably referring to, everything necessary for justification, sanctification, and glorification, the processes of the redeemed life of salvation, all the way from predestination, all the way from glorification, every link in the golden chain, if you will, he gives us all of that and everything necessary for that. Now, we can't really press this verse to mean that he will grant us everything, and that means he will grant us immunity from physical or social difficulties. In other words, it doesn't mean that we're going to live a life where there's no trouble. It does not mean that he is promising us a rose garden here. But even if we do have physical or social difficulties, God will give us grace to help in time of need due to those things, and he'll get us through it. First Corinthians 3.21, second part of the verse, Paul says this, For everything is yours. For everything is yours. Everything you need is yours. That's an abundant supply, folks. We go to verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? This is another way of saying if God is with us, who can be against us? By the way, which Paul mentioned in verse 31, and by the way, this verse, skeptics love to point this out to Christians and say, oh, you're so arrogant. You're saying God is on your side. How can you say God is on my side? Well, Paul said it, and I believe what Paul said because he was an inspired apostle of Christ. He said, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, that doesn't mean that God is for every harebrained scheme that a Christian comes up with. Of course not. But it means as far as our salvation and our being predestined, to be conformed to the image of Christ and for as our justification, our calling, and our glorification and all that, ain't nothing going to stop that. It doesn't mean that God is going to put his A-OK, his sanction, on every nitwitted scheme that some Christian might come up with. So Paul, again, I'm back in verse 33, Paul says, who could break an accusation against God's elect? Now, he's probably talking about a charge brought against the Christians. It's a legal term. A courtroom is in mind, as the NIV Study Bible says. Nobody can legally accuse us. The devil can't go to God and say, hey, he sinned. Boom, penalty, wages of sin is death. He needs to die. Well, no, that's been taken care of by our justification, just as if we had never sinned because of what Jesus did on the cross. His blood, sacrifice, atoned, covered our sins. So Jesus has already promised us, not pronounced us not guilty, so therefore, who could bring an accusation against God's elect? There's no more legal charge against us. God is the one who justifies. God is the judge. He's put the gavel down. He says, Dan Trotter is innocent. Get out of here, Mr. Prosecutor, Mr. Devil. Now, the background of this is the the Roman Christians probably were being legally accused and condemned by others. Former pagan associates might turn them into the government. The Roman government itself might root them out. Unbelieving Jews might turn them over. 
So that's probably going on here, and Paul's trying to comfort them. Romans 8.34, moving on, Paul continues, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes us, intercedes for us. How can the Son of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for Christians all the time, how can he condemn us? Well, he's been, we've already been justified. That means no more condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation. And so Paul continues with the thought he had in verse 1 right here in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? There ain't nobody that can condemn us. And we shouldn't condemn ourselves. We shouldn't let other people condemn us. We shouldn't let the devil condemn us for our sins. Because Jesus Christ covered our sins. And Paul mentions his crucifixion. He also mentions his resurrection. Because Paul always mentioned Jesus' resurrection. And when he was talking, he mentioned resurrection all the time. Of course, that speaks to power over death. And, of course, that's the theme here, is we need power over all this persecution and bad stuff that's happening to Christians, all this suffering that Christians are undergoing. Jesus rose again from the dead. He can take care of it. If he's strong enough to rise from the dead, he's strong enough to take care of our weaknesses here as we suffer. He's sitting at the right hand of God, and the right hand of God is the position of power, as is well known. We have a powerful defense attorney, in other words. Now, we mentioned in a previous verse, in verse 26 in the last audio, that the Holy Spirit always intercedes for us in our weakness. Let me read that, Romans 8:26. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, with unspoken groanings. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in verse 26, and here in verse 34, the Son of God is interceding for us. We have got... The Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity interceding for us with God the Father, and we've got the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit interceding for us with God the Father. That's two good that's two good defense lawyers. You can't beat that with a stick, folks. God loves you, and if you're in his elect, he has a wonderful plan for your life. To quote a famous evangelistic tract. So if Jesus can conquer death by being raised up, he can defend us from all the charges against us, both just charges and unjust charges. It doesn't make any difference. We're innocent, folks. Romans 8.35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, nothing. Paul mentions every bad thing he can think of. and says, look, even if you're experiencing all of these things at the same time, hey, doesn't matter. You have got God the Son and God the Holy Spirit interceding for you with God the Father, so don't worry about it. Jesus rose again from the dead. He can take care of you. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. That means at the position of power and authority. He can take care of you. Now let's do a little bit of theological speculation here. It sounds like nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That means it sounds like you can't lose your salvation. And in fact, this verse is a big problem for those of our Christian brethren who say we can't lose our salvation. And what the Armenians say is they say that the Christian's free will can separate us from the love of God, even though all those other horrible things cannot. And this is something that just occurred to me. On the Armenian position, it is a logical implication that our free will must maintain our salvation against all this affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Because if our free will can get us out, that means that we have to exercise our free will to keep us in. And that means your free will, my fellow Christian, your free will is going to overcome affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Lots of luck on that one. I don't believe it for a minute. Now, one more point, since I'm taking pot shots at erroneous theology, or what I perceive to be erroneous theology, Paul mentions affliction. 
He assumes that affliction can happen to Christians. Now, what does that say to the name it and claim it, scream it and redeem it, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, folks, in the hyperfaith movement? What does that say? It means Christians can suffer affliction. Now, let me give you a quote from John Gill. The suffering of this life is all the hell a Christian will ever know. Conversely, the joys, the joys of this life are all the heaven a lost man will ever know. I like that. One more point here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That's the, one of those genitives in the Greek that can be subjective or objective. Is it our love for Christ? Who can separate us from our love for Jesus Christ? Well, the two Calvinists of my commentators, John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, deny that. The, the Arminian Clark affirms it. So who can separate us from our love for Jesus? Well, Clark erroneously puts the emphasis on what we can do. We can maintain our love for Christ. I don't believe that. I think it, this phrase means Christ's love for us. Who can separate us from Jesus Christ's love for us? Jameson Fawcett and Brown say this, It is no ground of confidence to assert or even to feel that we will never forsake Christ, but it is the strongest ground of assurance to be convinced that his love will never change. This is quoting from Charles Hodge, the famous Calvinist Princeton theologian. John Gill affirms that it's Christ's love for us that we'll never be, we will never be separated from. Jameson Fawcett and Brown also affirms the same thing. That's what it is. Nothing can separate us from Jesus' love for us, in my humble opinion. Grammatically, it could go either way. Romans 8.36, as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. This is why I say that when Paul says all things work together, he's talking about bad things because he's listing a whole ton of bad stuff in these verses. Here, here he's likening the Christians to sheep that are being lined up to get slaughtered for, for meat. He's quoting, he says, as it is written, he's quoting Psalms 44:22. Because of you, because of you, God, we are slain all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes Psalm 44:22 here to show that suffering has always been the experience of God's people. And see, that's the way we ought to talk about suffering. It's bad, but we overcome it because Jesus overcomes it. We shouldn't say, oh, no, you're not going to suffer. That's the hyper-faith error. And there's another thing we ought not to say is, yeah, we suffer and we just, no, and that's just the way it is and we're not going to beat it. Too much emphasis on that leads to doom and gloom. Even experiencing martyrdom is not inconsistent with God's love for us, as Cranfield says. Suffering is not an indication that God does not love you, as Steve Atkinson says. God didn't stop loving Jesus when Jesus suffered, did he? Well, he doesn't stop loving you when you're suffering. Even though you're being put to death all day long as sheep getting ready to be slaughtered. Verse 37 in Romans 8. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. More than victorious, more than conquerors, as the NIV has it. Why are we more than conquerors in all these things? All these things, of course, all the bad things that have been mentioned. For example, in verse 35, Paul mentions affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. So in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That means you beat, but it's not a one-point game. You blow them out. If it's an NBA basketball game, it's a 25 to 30-point victory. There ain't no hope for the other side. More than conquerors. We're more than victorious. We're victorious how? Through our own flesh? No, through him who loved us. And that him could either be God the Father or God the Son. doesn't matter. We go down to verses 38 and 39. Paul summarizes chapter 8. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, when Paul says, I am persuaded, John Gill says that means he, Paul has expressed strong persuasion and full assurance of faith. It's not like he's wavering between two opinions and then somebody finally persuades, persuades him, yeah, Paul, I think God's going to take care of us. No, it means he is fully assured. Now, let's go through all these things, these bad things that possibly could separate us from the love of God, except for the love of Jesus. First of all, death. Now, this was quite an appropriate encouragement by Paul. Romans was written about A.D. 57. Nero's persecutions came about A.D. 64. Nero, of course, wrapped Christians in lion skins. He soaked the lion skins in oil and then lit them up and stood them around like lanterns at one of his feasts as the Christians burned to death. He threw Christians to the lion's den. He threw Christians to be eaten to death by dogs. He nailed Christians to cross, crosses and so forth. He set fire to them and burned them up. So this hadn't happened yet when Paul wrote Romans, but it was coming. He mentions that angels will not separate us from the love of God. Well, angels, is that good angels or bad angels? Ain't good angels or demons? It's hard to say. John Gill denies that it's good angels, but Jameson Fawcett Brown affirms that Paul is talking about good angels. Well, why would a good angel separate us from the love of God? So that, I don't think that referring to good angels doesn't make sense. Jameson Fawcett and Brown's answer to that problem is saying that Paul just supposes a good angel might do something like that as a hypothetical. But I think that's weak. I think it's demons. Demons not going to separate you from the love of Christ. Rulers? Well, rulers are called, principal, are called authorities in other places in the scripture. So the NIV actually translates the word as demons. Now, this would make a good parallel if angels are good angels. Angels or demons are not going to separate us from God. And that would be a hypothetical parallel, because actually an angel's not going to be trying to do that. But I really think it's talking about, well, if, if angels is talking about demons, then if you say rulers is talking about demons, then you've got demons or demons, which is a little bit repetitive. However, rulers could mean magistrates, civil magistrates, persecuting Christians. This is a little bit unclear because of the ambiguities of the Greek words there, but I would think that, that it makes more sense to say demons aren't going to separate you from the love of Christ and the civil authorities who persecute you and throw you into jail are not going to separate you from Christ. Things present are things to come. That, of course, includes bad things to come in the future. And remember, Nero is coming to these Christians. Hostile powers or powers, the Holman Christian Study Bible adds the word hostile, puts it in brackets before, so that would indicate hostile spiritual powers, demons again. Again, you have a little bit of trouble thinking why are demons being mentioned over and over again? If angels are demon, rulers are demon, hostile powers are demon, I would think they mean something different, but I don't know. Maybe he's just being repetitive. doesn't really matter. Now, these hostile powers could be, again, be civil magistrates who are persecuting Christians and throwing them into jail. Next, Paul mentions height or depth is that which is not able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, from the love of God. Height or depth. Steve Ackerson says that this is an astrological term referring to a star at its zenith and at its lowest depth. And since stars were considered back then to control mankind's destiny, what Paul is saying, I don't care what the stars are saying. I don't care what your sign is under the horoscope. It's not going to separate you from love of God, even if you were born under a bad sign. It doesn't matter. Jesus is still going to love you because you're not going to be separated from the love of God. Now, one note here. We are to thank God in the suffering, even if we can't thank God for the suffering. This is Steve Atkinson's weighty point, and that really is a good point to consider.
keep praising God, but do we necessarily want to say, God, thank you for making me lose my job. Thank you, Lord, that somebody's slandering my name all over the place and I can't defend myself and all the horrible things that happen to people. Remember, those things are evil. So we really need to focus on thanking God in the midst of the suffering, not saying, thank you, God, for all these bad things in the world. It's a subtle point, but I think it's an important point. Now, one last theological problem, and we'll shut this audio down. If all these bad things can't separate us from the love of God, what about our free will? The Armenians say that we can freely choose to separate ourselves from the love of God by choosing to walk away from our salvation. We can become unborn again, even though we've been born with the uncorruptible seed of God. We can say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to get unborn. Human beings can't do that, but according to Armenians, Christians can. Armenians say our free will is stronger than all those things that Paul just talked about. Stronger than death, life, angels, rulers, present things present, things to come, hostile powers, height of death. None of that could get us away from God, but our free will can. Let me just read two verses that put the quietus on that idea. John 10, verses 28 through 29. I give them eternal life. How long is eternal? Is it you get born again and you have eternal life, and then all of a sudden you cut off eternal life by your free will? And you reject God, well, then eternal ain't so eternal anymore, is it? Eternal means forever to the point that you are glorified. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. First John, after having read that verse, let's ask a question. Does someone who loses his salvation have eternal life? On the Arminian theory, Jesus only gives some people eternal life. But John says, I give them eternal life. Do you think that Jesus meant, I give some of them eternal life? Well, if you're an Arminian, you've got to believe that. Lots of luck. First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Why? Because God's gifts are without repentance. He gets us saved. He predestines us. He calls us, he justifies us, he sanctifies us, and he glorifies us, and he doesn't put a stop to that. And I know you might say, well, what about so-and-so? I, you know, I, like I said, I just saw somebody, uh, uh, a young woman, who talked about her fiancé, raised in a Christian school, raised in a Christian home, and she's reading the book of Joshua as she's snorting meth, crystal meth. And then she married this guy, and then she had a little financial problem. So she got back into the porn industry. And I don't mean watching the stuff. I mean doing the stuff, the most degrading stuff that's imaginable. Well, either she never was saved, and believe me, I wouldn't doubt that, or she has turned her back on God, and there's going to be a lot of burning of the flesh in her life, like in, like that man sleeping with a stepmother in First Corinthians 5, I think it was going to have to be a lot of flesh burning with that young lady and her husband. At any rate, we're finished now with Romans 8. We'll take up Romans 9, the election, the famous election chapter. I'll see you in that audio, I hope. I hope you enjoyed this one.